0: there. Good to see you today. Glad to get to be here together. My name is Misty Denman. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and we are going to talk about some weighty topics today. I know that doesn't come as any surprise to you right in the middle of Revelation and what it's been all uh, semester long. Today, we are going to talk about the call of messenger angels giving um, very important information to those who hear. We'll, call, we'll listen to the call of angels who call for God's final judgment on the earth. We'll listen to the call of John asking the saints to endure and hang in there faithfully and fight the good fight in the middle of some very trying circumstances. So this last week, as I um, kept thinking about that word call, I thought, I'll just look up the definition of call or calling because there's lots of different ways obviously that that word can be used and the very first one on the definitions that came up was you know a telephone call which is one i hadn't even thought about in the course of this study and i caught myself sitting at the computer looking at that definition smiling because of this picture here okay so the last time we had a big family gathering um, all the cousins were together too and on that side of the family the cousins range in age from 15 to 24, my sister-in-law showed them all a picture of that telephone and asked them, or told them that she would give a prize to anybody who could successfully describe how to use a phone like that. And, you know, all the adults are standing around listening or whatever, so it was pretty hysterical. Um, One person said, you know, okay, you stick your finger in their little circle and punch it. Okay, no, that's not it. The closest anybody got was, I think you put your finger in there and kind of push it a little bit. Um, and when we finally tried to explain to them that you, know, you put your finger in the number and turn the dial all the way around, let it go, it spins back, you do it again and you do it again and you do it all seven times, or I guess now 10 times or whatever, their thought was, oh my gosh, it just takes so long. How did you ever, like, was it even worth making a call for? And then their minds are really blown by, you know, the curly thing that attaches you to the actual um, cord. And I tried to explain to them what it was like to be a teenager, even in the 80s, where if you wanted to make a phone call, you know, you had to go to the kitchen phone and wrap that cord around the hallway and sit on the floor and try to talk quietly so your mom couldn't hear everything you were saying and she was anyway. And anyway, I think they think it's a lot better to live in 2020 than it was to live in any time before now in history um, entirely separate from the callings that we're talking about in Revelation today. But it's, I, the, since that happened over Thanksgiving, I've been waiting to tell somebody about that. So now you know. <laughs> Well, we'll move on to things of real importance here. Um, I'd love it if you'd open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 14. And we will start by reading just the first five verses together. I'll give you a second to do that. John says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. these have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb and in their mouths no lie was found for they are blameless so what is happening here and isn't that a question we ask ourselves every week in revelation so glad there's been lots of great answers to that so as in earlier chapters John is recording a vision that he's seeing What he's seeing and describing here is out of chronological sequence. That was the same as it was last week. Here, John sees Christ's return near the end of the great uh, tribulation. I think this was a scene that would have filled him with a lot of courage and hope and maybe even a fresh perspective. You know, a couple of weeks ago, Shelley talked about that divine pause in the action. Something similar is happening here. In the midst of seeing what these terrible judgments will look like, it's as if Jesus gives John a second to sort of step back, see some of his glory. Later in the chapter, we'll get to see God's very definitive judgment on mankind, on those who are opposed to God. But this Pause is a preview of the victory at the end of the story, an encouragement to John and encouragement to us too. So in these verses, John simultaneously a scene a scene in heaven and a scene on earth, and I cannot imagine what it would have been like to see the things he's describing. So he sees on Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem. Jesus standing, and he's not there alone. He's surrounded by um, the 144,000. He is victorious there. It is his holy city. They're, they're worshiping all around him. And isn't it interesting, I think, that John calls him here, even in that scene of power and victory, he calls Jesus the Lamb, the Lamb who laid down his sin, life for the sins of the world. I think John here is really holding on to both aspects of Jesus, both Jesus as the Lamb of God and Jesus as the victor at the end of the story. I thought about this a lot because I think it's um, important for us to do as well throughout Revelation, and even I think this is something I'll take with me as um, we continue in other studies beyond this semester, to hold these two views of Jesus in and at the same time, Jesus is the Lamb of God and also Jesus is the Lion of Judah there. So this 144,000 that John sees are those same 144,000 that we first saw back in chapter seven. They are Jewish believers who have come to faith during the tribulation. They live through those years despite intense persecution. And we see in them a picture of just deep faithfulness and steadfast service to the Lord despite very difficult circumstances. Now, we don't know whether these 144,000 were literal virgins who had such wholehearted devotion to the Lord that they chose not to marry during this time so that they could give all of their time and energy and service to the Lord, or whether that's a symbolic meaning that would describe their spiritual purity. There are other references um, in both the Old and New Testament that equate the concept of virginity to an undefiled faith or a purity. Either scenario, I think, is plausible. But what we do know is that this Faithful group understood that there wasn't a lot of time left um, before uh, people would have to turn their hearts to God or have no more time. They had a deep urgency to share the gospel, and they did that faithfully. Another thing that stands out to me so so um, so much in these verses about the hundred and forty four thousand is that they followed the Lamb wherever He goes. And they're also described as blameless. So during this time, and you can imagine it chaos, disorder, uncertainty, um, tribulation, they locked their eyes on Jesus. They followed his lead, they did it with total integrity. This is a picture of remarkable faith and obedience. And think about how young this group was in their faith. They had only come um, to their faith since the beginning of the tribulation. And I think that if they were able to live that faithfully under such hardship, uh, I am sure that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do and should live that way as well. They have been a real example to me as I have uh, studied this chapter Okay, so that's what John is seeing on earth. He also is seeing sort of at the same time a group of worshipers in heaven and they're singing what he describes as a new song. And we see that term new song a number of other times in scripture, particularly in the Psalms. And it's really always used to describe a um, sort of a hymn or a song of praise, of of yeah, I would say of praise on account of perhaps Jesus as creator. Jesus having saved the singer out of a very difficult um, situation, his grace and mercy. And that new song means that the singer is praising God in a new and fresh way, perhaps understanding um, an aspect or characteristic of God or being grateful for something that God has done in a new and fresh way. So the martyrs that are in heaven, and by the way, probably those worshipers that are singing this song would be martyrs who had died uh, for their faith during the tribulation, they are in heaven singing a song of praise to God with their whole hearts because although their lives surely didn't end the way they would have wanted them to, they uh, were persecuted They were called home and then rewarded by the Lord in his presence. So their song is one now of understanding and faith and um, gratitude, I think. But here's what's really neat. The 144,000 that we saw on earth are singing that same song of praise. And that's the only two groups that know and are able to sing this new song. The martyred um, worshipers in heaven and then this group of 144,000 on earth because they too, the 144,000, have been enduring persecution, but God has preserved their lives and their ability to share their faith. Both groups at the same time uh, saw turbulence and uncertainty, but chose to align themselves wholly with the living God The group around the throne died for their faith and now kind of see in glory rejoicing in heaven because they understand in a way they couldn't have on earth God's mercy and might and justice. Um, The other group continues to live out their faith in the midst of this persecution, also getting to experience God's mercy and goodness through the storm. They both sing the same song because whether God carries us through the storm and allows us to come out the other side um, here on earth while we're still alive, or whether that storm ends up calling us home to heaven to be with himself, both groups know that he is good and he is faithful and he is worthy of praise and trust. I love what Paul says in Romans eight. I think it speaks to this so clearly. He says, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the midst of our own hard things, let's take heart. Jesus is right here with us. And like those who suffered deeply, but then sang that song of triumph, Jesus will turn our sorrows to joy as well. So take heart. Okay, let's pick back up now in verse six. I'll um, read along if you want to follow along. These are the messages of the three angels. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him, him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of his name." So John here sees a succession of three angels, each with a message of great importance. That first angel announces God's coming judgment and he calls for reverence and worship. Now John uses, or the angel here, uses the word eternal gospel, but don't think here um, gospel in the sense of a salvation message. The context here is an eternal truth for all the ages and for all people. And I think that angel is a pretty straightforward speaker. He says, fear God and give him glory. He is mighty, he is all powerful, he is holy, He is the eternal creator. Don't brush over that. Don't minimize that. Don't deny that, but give God glory. He is now poised to judge those who deny him. The angel's message was to be taken very seriously. It should be taken very seriously today as well. We don't know when he will return, but we do know that with every passing day, the time is that much closer. The second angel announces a judgment of Babylon. Chapters 18 and 19 will go into great detail about Babylon's destruction. But here's what is um, important to know today. Babylon is the epitome of wickedness. Babylon represents a world system that wallows in the pursuit of um, prosperity and pleasure that rejects all things wholesome and holy and pure and of the Lord. So for Babylon, this pronouncement of coming judgment is bad news. But for God's people, it, is, it would be and is a welcome comfort, especially for those believers who are and who will suffer under the um, oppression and the regime of that kind of culture and rule and world system. You know, as I studied this, uh, I looked a little bit ahead at the very detailed description of Babylon um, in these later chapters. And I did the thing I always do that probably sometimes you do as well, and I I read all the stuff that Babylon does and you just think, for shame, Babylon, I just don't understand you, how could you do this? You deserve God's wrath. And then I remembered that I am no better, we are no better. Um, But for the saving grace of God, I would be right there in the midst with them as well. Um, This chapter causes me to want to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates and to have eyes to see the difference between the two. The coming judgment of Babylon is a call to root out the sin in our own hearts while there is still time. So that third angel announces judgment to those who choose to worship the beast and receive his mark. We talked about this a little bit last week. That angel brings, these are some pretty straightforward angels. They just kind of, you know, say it like it is, I think. He brings a warning in the strongest possible language. While the message comes across as fearful. I think there's also great mercy in it because while there will be enormous pressure at the time to get that mark, um, that angel warns us it will not go well for those who turn their backs on God and align themselves with the Antichrist. I think God is exceedingly gracious to give us this warning um, and giving us his son also, but For those who reject the gift and look to God's enemy to provide for them, they will experience God's wrath. There is great wisdom here as well. While those who refuse the mark of the beast during the tribulation will definitely suffer deeply. There is a definite end time to when uh, that suffering will come to a close. But for those who worship the beast and um, are able to uh, not have that suffering on earth, what this angel is saying is your suffering will be eternal. So you have this choice to make here. You can suffer on earth for a little while, but then know that God will reward that and take care of you for all of eternity, or you can choose to not have to experience that suffering um, right now and have it easy in these few years but then be separated from God forever and ever. There's um, temporary suffering and there's eternal suffering. And uh, God's messengers put it into those words as a warning and as a courage builder, I think, to his people. So I see evidence of God's great um, grace and mercy in this message. Look with me at Matthew 10. I think we looked at this in our homework as well. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul rather fear him who can destroy both both soul and body in hell. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father in heaven. So the messages, the call of these angels is to trust God and not anyone or anything else even when it seems like nobody else is trusting God, even when it seems like it doesn't make uh, common sense to trust God, even when everyone around you is telling you not to trust God, I am thankful we are not in such dire straits right now, uh, but the same truth applies to us today as well. We certainly have circumstances in our life where it seems like maybe it doesn't make sense to follow God's word. Maybe this other thing um, would make life a lot easier right now. These are words um, to encourage us and live by today and in the future. So the call of these three angels rings out clear. Fear God, give him glory know and be glad that he will destroy wickedness and worship him alone. We're gonna skip past verses 12 and 13 for just a few minutes. Come back to those at the end. So if you will, um, skip down with me to verse 14. and We're gonna pick up there. There's two judgments coming here. I'm gonna read just the first one. We'll talk about it. Then circle back around to the second one. Okay, so let's just stop here for a second. This is another prophetic vision that John sees. It's one of two harvests that happen or that we read about back to back. Let's talk about the first one. The one seated on the cloud is Jesus himself. We know he's called son of man throughout scripture. That gold crown on his head represents his authority, his kingship. The first harvest, this first harvest is probably meant to be representative of all all of the judgments together during the tribulation as a whole, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls, which are coming next. We haven't studied those yet. John describes them all together here as Jesus harvesting the earth. I think we've talked about this before, but a sickle is a short, we've got a picture of a sickle, is a short-handled tool that had this curved blade. It would be used by hand, and you would cut down um, particularly grains um, and harvest crops with them. I just think that's such a menacing-looking tool there. It just uh, I uh, had a picture in my head that was sort of different than I when I looked up images of these, and it's, it's, I know it's really useful, but it's... I don't know, it's just kind of a scary looking instrument. Um, Knowing what we already do though about the the judgments that we have studied, that sharp, scary looking instrument kind of makes sense to me. The judgments we have seen and that are still coming are intense, they are um, definitive, They are violent often. So when the angel says the hour to reap has come, the harvest is fully ripe. That word for fully ripe there, super interesting. It means a fruit or a vegetable on the vine past its prime. It is either beginning to dry out and wither up or rot there on the vine. I think that is so rich with meaning as we read this because At the time of this harvest, we know that the earth will predominantly be morally, culturally, spiritually rotten. No good will come from leaving the fruit on the vine any longer. It is time for that harvest. The um, fruit is fully ripe. And of course that uh, is determined by God's perfect timing. I also thought about all the years between when um, Jesus was on the cross and today and i think and who knows how long it'll be between today and when jesus returns to me it feels like a really long time and i even think about how uh some of the brand new believers in just the years after jesus died expected him to return any moment and that's been many years since then and sometimes i get um scared and discouraged and i think jesus isn't now the time? Come back now. It's too hard. This would be a perfect day for you to return. And I do think there is a call to pray like that. I think about in the Lord's Prayer where, uh, you know, the line that says, your kingdom come. But here's what I know. My timing and God's perfect timing are not the same. Here's what Peter teaches us about God's perspective on Second Peter on your verse sheet. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Right now, he is waiting to return so that as many people as possible will turn to him. But the day is coming when he determines that that harvest is more than ripe, more than ready, and at that point there's no more opportunity to believe and to turn to him and to repent. Okay, uh, now look with me also at on your verse sheet again at Revelation nine. Um, this is how, I, want, I think this is important to remember as we look at um, perhaps the scariness of these coming judgments. This is uh, how non-believers are described during the uh, trumpet judgments. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. God is patient and he calls for us all to come to him. But I think as all of Revelation is showing us he will not allow evil to go on forever. And I'm glad for that. Okay, let's look now at the second harvest, beginning in verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the great harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. This harvest is representative of Christ's final wrath on all unbelievers at the end of his or at the second coming. Okay, remember that all of chapter 14 is this preview of things to come at the end of the uh, tribulation, that first harvest overview of the uh, um, uh, judgments as a whole. The second harvest will happen at the end of the seven years when the heavens open and the victorious and mighty Jesus returns riding that great right horse. The saints are behind him. That happens in the second half of chapter 19. I can't wait for us to get to study that together. God uses angels to be a part of this time of judgment. The first one comes out of the temple. That would have been a place of God's holiness, his uh, presence. The second angel, it says, has authority over fire, and fire often represents a purifying force, a purifying of sin. The first harvest is probably a grain harvest um, and would use that sickle there. This is a grape harvest. We again see the harvest is completely ready, overly ripe, time. Is up. I was especially struck as I studied this uh, with that visual of the grapes and the vines, because I have always loved John 15, and it's probably familiar to you as well, where Jesus says, "I am the vine; you are the branches. And those who remain in me bear good fruit. You know that fruit of the spirit: love, joy, peace, patience. So there, um, Jesus is the vine. We're His people. We're the branches growing." Um, Uh, from him, he gives us life, we produce that fruit. But the grapes in this harvest don't represent the fruit of the spirit, they represent the fruit of evil. That is what is being harvested here. So if in John 15, Jesus is the vine, here, Satan is the vine, um, if we bear good fruit in John 15 because of our connection to Jesus, here, people are producing evil fruit uh, because of their connection to Satan. It's that rotten fruit that is trampled in the winepress of the wrath of God. God. And again, I'm glad for that day to come. It does sound horrific. And I don't have any doubt that it will be. But that is the day that God unquestionably eradicates evil forever. Verse 20 is certainly graphic. It tells us how bloody this battle will be. It will be centered in Jerusalem. 1600 stadia is roughly 200 miles. So the thought is that centered on Jerusalem and radiating out from it would be 200 miles of this um, battle. The uh, description of the blood is probably best understood to mean just a great amount of bloodshed or perhaps blood that splatters um, from the ground up to the, the um, height of a horse's bridle because it would be impossible that there would be an actual river of um, blood that, would be that, uh, that would be that much of it. Um, but when we here's what we know. When Jesus returns as a great warrior, no power of evil will remain standing against him. So today we get to live in a time of Jesus' patience toward us. Uh, it's sort of just an everyday fact of life and truth. I have really examined my own heart during this study, and I think The patience that Jesus shows us now has sort of rendered me lazy and complacent. I often think, oh yes, I need to share my faith with this person, oh yes, I need to pray for this person. But there'll be time, there'll be time. My prayer for myself and for all of us is that we, while we have the time, now start living with just a fire in our bellies to further his kingdom because there won't always be time, I want to tell everyone the truth um, that he came to seek and save the lost. I want to put away my fear of man at the reaction to that uh, because one day it will be too late. The day of his justice will be both glorious and terrible. So let us all live today in light of the truth of God's coming judgment. In chapter 14, John records the announcement of that series of messenger angels, but we're going to go back now and look at verses 12 and 13. These are words not spoken by an angel, but spoken by the Lord and the Holy Spirit himself. Uh, All of his word is important, but it certainly makes me perk up when I see um, these words spoken by the Lord. And I've also sort of saved the best for last. I love these verses here. So let's go back and read verses 12 and 13. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God in their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, "Write this: Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed," says the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, "that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them." So here, Is God's response to the suffering of his people. Who are the saints in verse 12? Those would be the men and women who have come to saving faith during the tribulation. They are in desperate need of encouragement and um, endurance because of how difficult and dangerous it would be to live during the tribulation as a believer um, in a world under the control of the Antichrist. But the defining characteristics of the saints that's mentioned here is that they keep God's commands, that they are obedient and keep the faith. Their obedience to God, especially in refusing to worship uh, the beast and receive his mark, is going to give evidence of their faith. Uh, It doesn't earn them their salvation, but it is evidence of it. And I I don't think this will be a time where there's any blending into the crowd where this will be a, I don't think it'll be a time where you can uh, say you're a Christian but not necessarily live like it. The tribulation will be a time uh, when you are or you aren't, and it's going to show. John also calls for God's people to endure their suffering to me, That's like a battle cry that just calls them to courage. Bear up under the world's, remember, bear up under the world's temporary troubles for Jesus' sake because he's worthy. Remember back that first angel that says he is worthy of our praise, worthy of our worship. Bear up under the temporary troubles for Jesus' sake. And a bonus to that is he blesses our obedience. The tribulation saints will be in desperate need, I think, to hear this truth. I hope it will be something that they tell each other, um, encourage each other with over and over all the time. I need to remember and live by this truth every single day. I'll bet you do as well, because this is true. Uh, These words are true not only for the tribulation saints, but for us today too. I have been praying that we will be women who answer the call to endure and keep our faith. Look with me at 2 Corinthians on your verse sheet. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond Comprehension, and I know that we're when we're under fire, our uh, that weight feels neither light nor temporary. Uh, But that's when I have to; we all have to rely on the promises of God and His Word. It's when we have to rely on the truth of what He says instead of our feelings. Um, And then there's this verse in chapter 13. John hears from heaven, not an angel this time, but uh, Jesus and the Holy Spirit Himself, where He says. The obedient and faithful are promised the blessing of rest. In light of the hard, nonstop work it will be to endure suffering and to keep the faith during the tribulation. I think this will be the most um, lovely and encouraging promise and full of hope here. I think uh, that blessing of rest and promise of rest is particularly true of the tribulation uh, martyrs, but it is just as true for every saint who has ever walked the earth or ever will, for all of God's people as well. And doesn't the perfect dress of Jesus just sound like the best thing ever. I think tired is one of my signature trademarks. And so when I hear about rest, I just think you couldn't have said one thing that would have encouraged me more, Lord, but there will be a day when I will be able to rest. And that's not just physical rest, but spiritual and and, um, emotional rest and just getting to finally rest and seeing from the other side of heaven what all of this was about and what the meaning of it was and what our suffering was. uh, was for and why God allowed it and the answers to our questions there's much um, there's much that goes into this sense of rest, and I am looking forward to it and i um I am, the other thing is, I am convinced there won't be any time change or springing forward during this present of rest. That wasn't Jesus' idea. We are not gonna have to do that. One day, I was, I was writing this on that, the two mornings after, um, you know, you get up and it's pitch black for so long. And I thought, oh Lord, thank you for making all things right one day. Um, for today, we God's people will answer the call to live with steadfast faith and with obedience. Today, we get to labor and share Christ with a lost world with this very sober assessment that a day of judgment is coming. Today, we get to worship him with our whole hearts even though we don't see him or understand him fully yet but a day is coming when we will be in his presence. There will be joy, there will be rest. And like the saints who endure during the tribulation, I pray that we will also faithfully endure knowing, trusting, resting in the fact that Jesus will reward us. Let's pray. Lord, in your word you say, that what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. We look forward to they, that day, Lord. I am asking that as we endure the unknown in our world today, the unknown of our future um, the hard things that happen because we just live in this world, that we will find hope and peace and rest and endurance and faithfulness and obedience in getting to look ahead at what you have in store for us. I am praying that we would be known as women who cling to your promises no matter what would you strengthen our spirits lord so that we can both understand your word and then have the courage and faith to live by it i am praying that we would be marked by that today um, as your women lord we love you we are good we are trust we trust you i'm asking that you would help us to trust you more i am praying for um, your spirit of peace over our lives today um, and in the weeks to come. Um, Nothing is outside of your control, Lord. Nothing is outside of your grasp. There is nothing that's coming up for us that you don't already know. Help us to remember that and live by it, God. And we ask all these things in your holy name, amen.